0: the book of Judges is a book of contrasts. It not only contrasts Israel in their ongoing sinfulness against God's grace towards them, but it's also a book of contrasts in the way that the writer records different periods and events in this more than 300 years of Israel's history. For example, back in chapter nine, We see there there are 57 verses that cover a period of three years. But chapter 10 begins by taking us through 45 years in just five verses. Chapter 9 provides some very specific details regarding significant events, whereas we're told very little about Tola and Jair and what they actually did. On account of that, In a similar way to which we refer to the major and minor prophets in the Old Testament, you'll sometimes hear these various judges spoken of as major and minor judges. Tola and Jaya being two examples of the minor judges. Now when we use the words major and minor like this, we we don't mean superior and inferior. We don't mean more important as opposed to to less important. Uh, Major and minor simply refers to the amount of ink on the page and the number of pages, whether there are more or whether there are fewer. The 12 minor prophets are called that because combined together, they take up less space in your Bible than the single book of Isaiah. But we don't consider them to be lesser books than Isaiah. They're simply smaller in volume. Well, at least in theory, we don't consider them to be lesser books. But we do have a tendency in, in us, don't we, to, to, to think and assume that bigger equals better. That having more to say must equate to something being of far greater significance and importance. And that way of thinking can sometimes be very unhelpful when it comes to assessing the Bible and how God is actually at work. Before we come to Judges chapter 10, think, for example, of that long list of names that some of you will be familiar with, or at least remember that there is a long list of names at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans in the New Testament as he's passing on his greetings. There are, I think, 35 people either named or referred to as someone's mother or sister, for example, plus the churches with which those people are associated. And for many of them, probably most of them actually, that's the one occasion only when their name appears in the New Testament. And for the most part, we know absolutely nothing about them. And you can find yourself taking very little notice of them. For example, do you remember Andronicus and Unia? Andronicus and Unia. Andronicus and Unia. Andronicus and Unia? No. <laughs> They may as well have been one of last year's couples on Strictly Come Dancing, mightn't they? But Paul wasn't going to forget them. They also are in prison for the cause of Christ as he's writing his letter to the Roman church. They are very highly thought of and esteemed by the apostles. They'd been believers for more years than the apostle Paul had. So it's highly likely, therefore, that either they'd come to faith through the gospel ministry of the Jerusalem church, or as a result of the believers who were scattered under the persecution of the church from people like Paul back in the days when he was Saul of Tarsus. Wouldn't it be amazing, wonderful, remarkable if it were that latter case that these two imprisoned Christians originally came to faith because of the persecution of Saul against the church. And now they're amongst all of those believers who he mentions at the end of that letter. And they, like him, are in prison for the cause of Christ. Andronicus and Unia, they get one verse in the Bible. But what lives and testimonies of grace And faith must lie behind that single verse. If only you would read it. And then just pause for a moment. And just apply a little thought. And ask yourself a few simple questions. Not a single word in the Bible is superfluous or wasted. So in Judges chapter 10, the tendency might be to read verses 1 to 5 and decide for yourself. Nothing much happening here then. And simply keep on reading. Let's get to the juicy stuff with Jephthah and Samson. But I want to suggest to you, perhaps there is more here. Than meets the eye. Because very often when we read a passage like this. We find ourselves jumping to wrong conclusions. And that's actually my first point this morning. Jumping to wrong conclusions. And I want to say a few things under that heading. The first is this very fact that we can read a passage of scripture and the conclusion that we come to is there's nothing in this for me. I want to humbly suggest that what is often more accurate might be this. I actually can't be bothered spending the time or the effort to look or I just don't have the motivation to spend time or effort looking. If that is you, I suspect that it might be accurate to say that one of the reasons that you might be like that is because you don't often read any books which will help to take you systematically through the Bible so that you don't skip over these kinds of verses, but you are forced to pause and consider them. Now, it could be that you are a good reader. Maybe you read lots of good Christian books, but perhaps you only read books of a certain type. Books maybe which are topic Based And there's nothing wrong with those. I've got loads of them, but not so much books which take you systematically through books of the Bible. I could be completely wrong on that, but I have a suspicion I might be correct that maybe you don't read too much like that reading, which helps you to pause over the text to slow down and consider, to read between the lines, without reading into it something which isn't there. Books like this one, that I've already recommended on this series for judges, uh, or this one in the Wellin series, not expensive, they're not 3,000 pages long. They're not written in Old English. They're not difficult to read. You can read a chapter of the Bible, read a chapter in a book like that. You can do so comfortably without rushing in 30 to 40 minutes. You could use it prayerfully as a daily devotional. Asking the Lord to increase your appetite for the word of God. If you've never done so, I really encourage you to try it. We also see and are reminded here in these first five verses of Judges 10 that you don't have to have your name in lights to play an important role in God's kingdom. Don't for one second allow yourself to think of these two men, Tola and Jair. The Bible doesn't say very much. Therefore, they can't have done very much. If God had decided to record every single detail about everyone that he ever used, none of us would have got to the end of the Bible yet. And I wonder how many volumes it would take. And you might remember, just in consideration of the life of Jesus, John the Apostle said there are are so many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written down one by one, I suppose that the whole world could not contain the books that had been written. He says that in John 21. I mentioned all those believers listed in Romans chapter 16. Alongside all the people whose lives are documented in greater detail in the New Testament, there are all these others playing such a vital role in gospel witness and in the life of local churches in New Testament days. And so many others besides them. And just there at the end of Romans, it's as if Paul just opens the door a little and allows us to peer inside. And he says, look, it's so much more than just me. I wonder, for the likes of Paul, Peter, Timothy, Silas, those names that we know so well. I wonder just how much of their ministry would never have taken place were it not for the prayer, the practical helps, the hospitality, the financial support, the encouragement provided by all of these behind-the-scenes believers. Precious, precious brothers and sisters in Christ, as far as Paul was concerned. The most ordinary Christian, as we might consider ourselves, is an extraordinary instrument for good in the hand of God. And as a product of of his saving grace and power. And these opening five verses also remind us that for God to be at work, things don't have to seem big and dramatic. You don't have to have riveting stories to tell as a proof that God has been at work. An air of excitement isn't necessarily a proof of spirituality. That's not an excuse, of course, to make everything intentionally dull. But to look at verses 1 to 5 and to conclude, there's not much happening here. You really couldn't be more wrong. Things have become so bad in Israel that God had had to remove Abimelech and the entire population of Shechem. That's a big level of bad. And so what will God do next? He will bring onto the stage these two men. And all we know about Tola is which tribe of Israel he came from, who his dad and granddad were, and the town in which he lived and died. Regarding Jair, well, he was from Gilead. He had 30 sons and was buried in Caman when he died. And the name Havoth suggests that actually they were tented villages rather than bricks and mortar. And by means of these two men, Israel remained at peace. And so the text implies, was kept from idolatry for 45 years. Now, it's true. On the face of it, there's no exciting story to tell in Sunday school. There's no miraculous victory against unsaleable odds. Hang on. Actually, that's not right. This is an amazing story to tell. Have you forgotten already what Israel were like? What's missing after the death of Tola is recorded in verse 2? What is not there? What does the text not say? After each of all the previous judges have died... What always comes next in the text? That's right. Israel returns to their hideous idolatry. But what does not happen after the death of Tola? That's right. Israel don't do that for the very first time in Judges. They don't. This is massive. Don't miss it. Israel are being kept and preserved from such awful sin. They're being saved from themselves. They're being kept from the anger of God burning hot against them. They're being kept from God's judgment over them. And they're going to be kept like that for 45 years. It may only be five verses, but what God is doing there is immense. Now, we have no details given when it says Tola saves Israel. But clearly, whatever it was, Israel continues to be saved. Saved from the mess left behind by Abimelech. Saved from their own sinful lusts and desires. Saved from God's judgment and granting the nation 45 years of rest and stability. How unbelievably kind and gracious God is being towards them. Verses 1 to 5 are huge. We're meant to read those verses and marvel and wonder at the grace and glory of God. All of which leaves us screaming at the top of our voices But how could you when we get to verse 6? Last week in the afternoon service, we had a crystal clear message on the topic of repentance. Now, we have to be careful not to jump to the wrong conclusions. But perhaps there is a hint that all is not as it might be in Israel where we read about Jair and his 30 sons. Now, presumably he had some daughters as well as sons, and it all suggests that just like Gideon, he'd taken more than one wife. If he hadn't, then he's married Wonder Woman. And his 30 sons, are parading around on their 30 donkeys. And that's much more prestigious than any images of Blackpool Beach, which might be conjured up in your own minds. That suggests considerable wealth. And maybe, just maybe, during the rule of Jaya and his sons, Perhaps they were beginning to get a little too big for their boots. Perhaps things were just beginning to slip slightly. There might be a suggestion in that verse there, that there is just the beginnings of a decline. But once Jair has gone, the nation plunges headlong into a depth of idolatry that far surpasses anything that's gone before. They go for it wholesale. No foreign deity is out of bounds. In for a penny, in for a pound is their slogan, and they're embracing every false god, every idolatrous form of worship that they can possibly lay their hands on. They could not have been more reckless or more willfully sinful. And all of this in the face of 45 years of grace and kindness. And you think to yourself, come on Israel, how could you? And we wonder, has there ever been true repentance in Israel? Well, you could be forgiven for coming to the conclusion that true repentance has never been seen But if there has in the past been repentance in the people, it certainly does show you that one generation's repentance brings with it no guarantees for the generations which will follow. It shows you that future generations, even having been brought up under such great blessing and privilege, can plunge very deep into the mire of sin. It shows all of you younger ones who are listening that you cannot look to or rely upon the faith of your mum and dad if you live in a Christian home. What will you make of Christ? Who do you say he is? Will you love and serve him? Will you turn away from sin With your shirt wet front and back, as we heard about last week. Will you? Have you? And for those of us who are Christians, take note that if you dally with sin, if you keep returning to your sins, you can reach the point where God will no longer come to your aid. You cry out to him. But you're you're holding tightly in your hand this sin over here. And God will no longer hear you. Your prayers will go unheard and unanswered by him. Think of it this way. How many people do you know who will gladly and warmly welcome home their husband or wife knowing that they've just been with the person with whom they're having a long-standing affair. Who does that? Or suppose a husband or wife discovers that their spouse has had an affair but the affair is abandoned and by God's grace and mercy they're able to restore their relationship but then the spouse has a second affair and a third Just how many times is their marriage partner going to be able to keep on forgiving and put up with that kind of betrayal? Well, we discover that in a way that's exactly how it is with God in verse 13, with this ongoing betrayal by Israel. God's not a pushover. You don't don't play these kinds of games with him. We were reminded last week, I've said it myself several times, repentance is not a one-off event. Repentance has to become the ongoing state of your heart. You are to be continually repentant. Turning away from your sins and turning away from your sins and leaving them behind and leaving them behind. As you follow after Christ. God vents his fury against Israel because they still haven't left their sins behind. Sin gets God furious, even with his own people. And don't ever think any different. It's what makes the gospel so amazing. It's what makes us realize just how vast His grace and His mercy really is. And we read in verses 7 to 9 here that God batters and shatters Israel. It's the kind of language that's being used. And in verses 11 to 13, He tells them why. You've abandoned me for that, asks God very well. Go back to that. Trust yourselves to that. Build your life upon that. Get that to save you. Get that to do what I can do. Now, of course, in Israel's case, it was the worship of false gods and and idols. Let me ask you, do you know that that you have something other than God which is taking up more and more of your time, your devotion, your energies, your resources? If that's the case, don't be surprised if you one day discover that God leaves you to rely completely upon that thing in order that you might realise just how powerless and futile that thing, whatever it is, really is. If you persist in making sinful choices and decisions which you know are wrong, because remember, Israel are not acting in ignorance. They know they're walking down a sinful path. If you do the same, God may well leave you to stew in your own juices like he does with Israel under the oppression of these foreign nations. What we discover in Israel here is that when you set something up in your life as an idol, you become a slave to it. And then the more, the more it enslaves you, the more of an idol it becomes. It's a vicious downward spiral This is the thing which now dominates your life, sets your agendas, decides your priorities, even sometimes keeps you away from church. It's become an idol and you've become enslaved by it. And idols, of course, don't just come in the form of physical things. Even things like Doctrinal heresies, ideologies, political persuasions can all produce exactly the same thing within you. Well, for 18 long years, Israel suffered as God left them to stew in the juices of their idolatry. But we're reminded just at the end. In verse 16. That ultimately. It's all about grace. It's all about God's grace. Quite a lot of commentators like to suggest that in verses 15 and 16. We see real signs of change and hope in Israel. And that may indeed be how we're supposed to read those verses. Surely what we see. Is. An initial sign of repentance at last being replaced by the the putting away of their idols and their serving of the Lord in asking God to do whatever seems best to him. Surely that's a really positive sign that at last they've truly changed. Well that may be so and God knows what the condition of their hearts were at that point in their history. But of course at the same time given their track record and our inability to know their hearts and minds we can't really be certain that that was truly the case in these people. And the closing phrase of verse 16 is interesting. God's soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. So in the text there, no comment is offered regarding the actions that the people were taking. We're not told that God sees and accepts this as genuine repentance and that on account of their repentance, God is now prepared to save them. There's no mention of that actually in the text. What we see there at the end of verse 16 actually is not a commentary on what the people in Israel have just done. What we have there is a commentary on the nature and the heart of God. Ultimately, it's all about grace. It always is. God will move in their favour. But not because they've earned it. Not because it's a reward for their repentance, even if they have repented. But in accordance with his own nature. Yes, he's abandoned them to their idols, but he has not completely forsaken them. Yes, his anger burns hot against them in their sins, but his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness are still fully intact at the same time. Yes, he's bringing his judgment to bear upon them in his righteous anger. But he's filled with compassion towards them at the same time. And we are told that God can endure their misery no longer. Enough is enough for my people. That's God's heart towards them. And when we consider that. When we see the heart of God laid bare in that way, in just those few words at the end of verse uh, the end of verse sixteen, there why would we want to provoke such a God as this with our stubborn obe- disobedience and our willful pride? Why do we so easily find ourselves turning aside to things other than God and permit such things to dominate us and become a barrier between us and our Saviour. Why would we do that? The lasting image that we need to have in our minds as we conclude this morning is a God of all grace, who abounds towards his people in mercy and in loving kindness. Not so that we can try and take advantage of him and play fast and loose with God. But that as we see him like that, that it would actually drive us once more to our knees in confession of our sins. That it would once more drive us to the cross to be overwhelmed again by the depth and the extent of God's love, that it would cause us to humbly bow before our Creator and Saviour and plead his mercy on me, a sinner. As I see the heart of God towards his people laid bare in Judges chapter 10, And of course, later in the scriptures, supremely demonstrated towards us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. My only proper response can be this. How can I not love him who first has loved me?